Welcome to DOS. In this episode, curator and writer Juana Berrillo and artist Delcy Morelos visit a permanent exhibition in the Gold Museum in Bogotá, Colombia. It is one of the most visited museums in Latin America and contains the world's largest collection of pre-conquest gold artifacts. Juana's and Delcy's original conversation was edited and translated into English and is interpreted here by writer and teacher Wendy Tronrud as Juana and gallerist and artist Janice Guy as Delcy. It was a mild, rainy day. Look at those giant earrings. I imagine they were used in rituals. Back then, gold objects were something sometimes also used as offerings. Gold was considered a sacred material with a symbolic charge and with shamanic power. There was a reciprocal relationship between the sun and gold. The sun had to activate the gold. The rays of the sun made the object shine and fertilize the gold. With the artificial light here in the museum, that doesn't happen. In fact, some indigenous ethnicities still go to sacred places on special days of the year to sunbathe the gold. I think the Spanish for sunbathing, asolear, is a really beautiful word. They purified and revitalized the gold with fertilizing power. Not so long ago, a group of artist activists did a performance with mirrors to bring the sun to the gold objects inside the museum. How beautiful. Right here they talk about the reflection of the sun, which honored the sun and at the same time induced a trance. But I wonder if by using those gold objects, they didn't become targets in the forest, especially with other predators around them. Shiny objects must call attention in that context. It wasn't the forest. I think those objects were found on the high plateau of the Altiplano Cundipoyacense, where it's pretty cold and there aren't as many animals or vegetation as in the forest. The larger objects were used in rituals and in war. They were vessels of power. The smaller ones could be used in daily life. What is this? Is it a gray metal or a super polished stone? It looks like a metal object. Maybe it was used as a mirror. It has a little hole, probably for hanging. The story that the Spaniards were the first to show mirrors to the indigenous people and so bought their gold, territory, and freedom should be recontextualized, no? Well, there's a truth in it because the indigenous people didn't value the gold in itself, but rather its shine, its resplandescence. It was more about the light that is perceived by the eye. And the shine was seen as carrier of an energy that was transmitted to human beings. The gold was light, semen, and power. According to their beliefs, gold had a supernatural value. It wasn't used for commerce. For them, it was like changing one shine for another. These are adornments for the body, right? And this one looks like a breastplate. Yes, it looks like it could be hung and adjusted to the body. They made the cords for hanging and it has copper in it too. Can you see the stains? Yes, that specific gold and copper alloy was called tumbaga. They also mixed gold and silver and achieved different tonalities and designs. Actually, most objects in this gold museum are actually mixtures of gold with another metal. The value or power of the objects wasn't so much connected to the purity of the material, but rather it to its use and symbolic charge. True. And as you know, I was just thinking, 
Now there are so many objects for different uses, with an endless array of forms and colors. And almost, almost all are made in China. Sometimes they're very cheap, and these objects rarely have any additional value beside their use. Back then, people had few objects, a few plates, bowls, small wooden chairs, and some baskets, most of which were made by their owners. And the rest was nature, the river, the sun, the trees, the clouds. Yes, it wasn't important to own many styles of the same object. Perhaps the idea was to stick with a few things with which they could identify themselves. It's difficult to think of something like that in our time. It's very uncommon to have everyday objects that were especially made for a specific person. Personalized objects or things that are specially made for the needs of a single person are expensive luxury items. Owning such unique objects is tied to the notion of exclusivity, which is a highly monetized concept within capitalism. Living with objects specifically made for someone is a privilege of the few. Maybe that's why we now mostly consume pre-made and mass-produced objects. Many of these are electronics made in China, which ironically we can customize according to our needs and taste, and they so give an illusion of being unique. These tastes and necessities generate more marketplace consumption of information, products, and gadgets. Ha, we're stuck in a loop. Yes, there's such a large quantity of objects now that they've lost their value. And back then, those objects were very valuable. They weren't only designed for a specific use, but these designs were also impregnated by specific beliefs and cosmogony. And it's important to remember that they kept these objects their entire life. These objects accompanied the life of one person. This is very different from the current Western idea of ownership. Family and marriage are defined by private property. These social institutions define which objects belong to whom, how one can inherit, who can inherit them, how one can prolong or, or reproduce their value. Here, on the contrary, these objects seem to be tied to the existence of a single being. In fact, I think it's important to mention that the majority of the objects on display here actually come from graves. They were buried together with the person. They didn't have any other use after the death of the original user. The houses were very small, so they couldn't have many objects. And there was also a bartering system. One thing could be exchanged for another. If I'm an artisan and I don't have time to cultivate food, I can exchange my ceramics for food or for products that didn't exist in the region. Right, there was no abstract currency as we know it today. If a new thing came into a person's life, it meant another left. And all these objects that were carriers of their beliefs, visions and experiences ended up buried with them. Yes, and that is a totally different way of understanding the value of things. When they were alive, those objects had value because they were used by that particular person, but they didn't have any economic value after the death of the person who they accompanied. It is the value of the individual life of those human beings that gave value to the object. These look like bracelets and earrings. They have a peculiar spiral geometry. You actually see this type of geometry when you're under the influence of a plant with power like yahe, or ayahuasca, yopo, or mushrooms. These types of images are called phosphenes. Before the human brain goes into a trance, it sees this type of geometry, and in this case, the people reproduced it in their objects. 
but they didn't do it for decorative reasons. The intention is much deeper. They wanted to relive the experience of the encounter with the supreme divine realm. This bracelet that I'm wearing is made by Beatrice Lusitante, wife of the Taita Guillermo Lusitante of the Kofan people. This strange geometry and the vibrant colors are her visions. Some ethnic groups actually preserve that geometry in their collective imaginary, and it has an ample repertoire of meanings. The Taitas are a lineage of priests, and they are also social leaders that give advice. To this day, the word Taita is used in Colombia for father. And when you enter one of these trances, do those images stay with you? And you can translate them into drawings afterwards? Or are the geometric patterns made while in the trance? You can't do it in a trance. The images stay in your memory. You remember them and then you draw them afterwards. These images are actually induced by vision. They are able to transport one's consciousness to the sacred, the divine. And when you see images like these envisioned in the past, you relive the visionary experience. I also wonder about the colors. Maybe the illustrated figures on some of the objects we see in the museum used to have colors that have disappeared over time. I'm saying this because the psychedelic art we know today, which also features geometric figures and is connected to the search for and the interpretation of other dimensions of consciousness, usually has very bright, strong colors. And I wonder if these geometric forms we see didn't also have those strong colors. Yes, you're right. They were probably stronger. Colors oxidize, oxidize over time and lose strength. But you also have to remember they didn't have today's artificial colors, which are stronger and more vibrant. Here there is a direct connection with the sun. When you're under influence of plants with power, you're very sensitive to light. The ceremonies are usually done in darkness. If your eyes are closed, you see light, geometry, color. And if you open your eyes, you see darkness and bright flickering that's even more stimulated by fire. The vibration of light reinforces the trance. And now we arrive at the poporos. A poporo is the ritual recipient for consuming the coca leaf. It consists of a little bowl and a stick. While it has a humble look, the poporo is full of symbolism. The poporo represents the woman and the stick is the man. It's a recipient for calcium. You humidify the tip of the stick by mouth and then submerge it into the poporo. This way, small pieces of pulverized calcium stick to it and then you insert this tip into your mouth to mix it with already chewed coca leaves on one side of the mouth. Here you can actually see that the figures are chewing. One side of their face is inflated. So this little stick was for the chalk to mix it with coca leaves and activate it. This effect is very different from cocaine. I think we really need to make this clearer. The coca leaf contains a very small amount of alkaloids. Cocaine is a concentrate of alkaloids mixed with many synthetic chemicals. It's concentrated, artificial, and damaging. An alkaloid is a chemical compound that occurs naturally. It contains simple nitrogen atoms. Most alkaloids have intense physiological effects in animals, 
even in low psychoactive doses. Caffeine, nicotine, quinine, and morphine are all examples of alkaloids. What we know as cocaine is a high concentration of the alkaloid found in coca leaves combined with synthetic substances. And the coca leaf is generally used in high altitudes in the mountains in order to bring more oxygen to the blood. They chew the leaf to change their blood pressure and to numb some pains. It is a sacred medicinal plant. Yes, to work and walk a long time at high altitudes with little oxygen. Indigenous communities use the leaf to be concentrated, to stay focused, conscious, and in connection with the sacred, flowing more in spiritual thinking. But the big difference is that there is no trance with this use. You could compare it to coffee. It has a relatively light effect in the body. You simply facilitate the flow of oxygen in the blood. Yes, the cocaine is very different. The body suffers a shock. With the poporo, the effect of the alkaloids is very light, almost nothing. The effect is only felt over time. The important thing is that you only use the poporo in a ritual manner. Right, there's a big difference between the use of the coca leaf and cocaine. Cocaine is now used as a recreational drug, and you obviously can't disassociate the use of the coca leaf from the poporo. Poporos are in fact personal objects. Yes, and there were poporos for daily use as well as for ceremonies. They started using it shortly after puberty. These poporos have the shape of fruits and seeds. They are very simple, but there are some very elaborate ones too. The form and the elaboration speak to the status of the person and their level of knowledge. You know, I've been observing the tourist in the museum, and it's as if every time we say the word coca, they make a face as if we said cocaine. Yes, and that is actually an offense to the indigenous communities for whom the coca plant is sacred. Cocaine is a contemporary product, creation of the white man who commercializes and degenerates the ritual uses of their sacred plant. The use of the popmoro is a sacred ritual that has to be done following the ancient teachings of the mamos, who are wise men. The same happens with tobacco, which many ethnic groups in the Americas consider a sacred plant. For the huitotos, for example, who live in the Amazonian forest in Colombia and Peru, Tobacco is sacred for them. Not using the plant according to the ancestral teachings offends the plant and has disastrous consequences like cancer. They have communicated with the plant in trance and have seen the spirit of the plant. Trance is a form of contact with the divine. It's an offering of knowledge, dance, song, and wisdom about harvesting life, healing, or medicine. Those are nose plates, necklaces, breastplates, here you actually see how they manipulated their bodies with accessories. They would resemble animals. This nose plate, for example. Do you see it has the shape of the nose of a feline? When they wore it, they had the powerful sense of smell of the feline, its agility, astuteness, and power, just like the jaguar, the best hunter. In fact, you can see how they worked hard to get the same texture of the jaguar's fur. You can see the stains of the skin. Unbelievable. And it seems that each of them has some sort of story. Yes, look, those human figures have a tail, like the tail of a monkey. They used to dance and imitate animals who were carriers of supernatural powers. Their clothing depended on the ritual dance they do. 
Following this theme a little more and thinking about the deformations that we see in the representation of the human body in these figures, especially the skull, they also did that to their own body, right? Why would they do that? I think to their eyes it could be beautiful or attractive, maybe similar to today's plastic surgery. They could have also done these deformations to resemble an animal. I guess they wanted to take the animal's physical appearance to acquire its abilities and supernatural strength. Or it could also be the case that they did it to differentiate themselves from other tribes, to be distinct, and so induce fear in their, into their enemies. It's really impressive. Instead of putting on accessories to differentiate themselves, they manipulated their own body. They would also use body painting. The seeds of the huito tree in the Amazon are used to make inks that stays on the skin for three weeks. There's a lot of information about the carrier in the body drawings. It tells you which ethnic group they belong to, how old they are, if they're single, married, if they will go on a journey. Someone really close to them makes them, or they make them themselves. These are drawing words, unreadable messages for those who don't understand this image language. It carries all the information. And it is a common language that the others can recognize. I often wonder about the cultural knowledge and skills and how they may have been transferred, eradicated, or simply not perceived when the conquistadores arrived in America. They had some knowledge of metalwork, but I think it was fairly limited. Do you think that they learned any techniques or forms from the indigenous gold workers? Or did something enter their making in a more viral way? I doubt it. I think the Spaniards only wanted to melt the gold into ingots and transport it to Spain. They probably knew little about how to work the gold. But what is even more important is that many of the ethnic groups that produced the objects we see here were exterminated. We are looking at objects that precisely contain that knowledge. It is as if they were waiting for their meaning to be unraveled, maybe by academics, but maybe also by people like us who engage with these artifacts in a more intuitive manner. This DOS episode came about thanks to the original speakers, the interpreters, and Eric Mayenberg and Susana Solis, who helped with sourcing field recordings in Mexico's Museum of Anthropology. DOS conversations are instigated and edited by Sarah Demuse. Thanks for listening in. Join us again next time.